It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. An initiative to install community gardens throughout Sitka is coming before the city's planning commission. The Sitka Community Garden Project is the brainchild of the Sitka Local Foods Network and Transition Sitka, with the goal of tackling food insecurity in the community. Joel Hansen is the project leader. He says they're planning to build two half-acre gardens initially, one on Jarvis Street and one on Osprey Street near Blatchley Middle School. They would each contain about 50 uh, standard 10-foot by 20-foot garden plots that we would rent um, uh, to, um, to members of the community for gardening um, vegetables, you know, whatever the interest of the, of the individual gardener may be. Um, we, we're hoping that people will be gardening mostly um, fruits, vegetables, and, and you know, leafy greens um, rather than flowers, although you know, flower growers are welcome as well. But what the interest is is uh, is to enhance uh, the community's food security over the long run. Hansen says community gardens are popular around southeast Alaska. Ketchikan, Juneau, Wrangell, and even smaller communities like Tenakee Springs have them. Sitka's project would be a cooperative model based on Juneau's Community Garden Association project in the Mendenhall Valley. Each of the gardeners, um, the garden plot renters, uh, um, enter into a, um, a kind of a contractual ag- arrangement uh, with the association. So they become uh, members for a term of one year. Um, and during that one year, they, they have access to their garden site and they, they go ahead and plant uh, whatever they wish on their site. Um, and if they're successful and enthusiastic and, and uh, come back again to do it the next year, then then over time, a, a core group of, of, uh, of gardeners tend to coalesce and become a kind of a steering committee for the project. Hansen says that Juno's gardens have been financially independent from the city for over 20 years, and that's their hope for Sitka's project too. But both of the locations the group has zeroed in on are city-owned lots that they hope to lease and develop. Their proposal to lease both lots is going before the Planning Commission at its regular meeting tonight. Staffing remains a huge problem for the Alaska Marine Highway System. That was the message from the new director, Craig Tornga, during a meeting last Friday with the Ferry System's statewide board. Crewing, that's our, our biggest uh, biggest pain we have right now. It's uh, just a daily challenge. Tornga says the crew shortage affects how many ferries can run this summer. Six of the system's nine ferries are operating. There is not enough crew to run the Kennecott, one of the state's largest ferries, and other ferries are at a risk of getting tied up. The only reason we have six vessels uh, operating is the willingness of the crews to work over. We're at risk of shutting the hover down on uh, this next week because we can't get a, uh, another licensed engineer on board. The Hubbard is a newly built day ferry that runs the Lynn Canal, connecting Skagway, Haines, and Juneau. It's running this week despite Tornga's comments. The ferry system needs over 800 workers, both on and offshore, to run its fleet efficiently. Tornga says entry-level positions on the water are fully staffed, but they are short by nearly 60 higher-level positions that require licenses, like those that steer the boat in the wheelhouse and work in the engine rooms. 
Hiring new ferry workers is a complicated process and can take months. There is a shortage of marine workers worldwide. The demand is outpacing supply. But Alaska has its own specific problems, including short staffing on shore. Tornga says administrative vacancies are causing payroll issues for ferry workers every day. And that's leading to a bad reputation when recruiting new workers. Don't take the job with the Alaska Ferries will get paid. He says the state's Department of Transportation plans to assume the ferry system's payroll responsibilities, which will help. DOT spokesperson Sam Dapsevich says that transfer has been ongoing since earlier this year. He says they are training in-house staff and plan to have the new payroll system up and running in the coming months. Southeast Alaska's House District 2, Representative Rebecca Hemshoot wrapped up her first legislative session in May. The session ended with weeks of negotiation over the state budget. Lawmakers approved a one-time allocation for education, $680 per student. When Governor Mike Dunleavy signed the budget into law a few weeks later, he vetoed $200 million, including half of that one-time education funding. Representative Himshoot sat down with KFSK's Hannah Floor to discuss how the session played out. The number one thing I hear about in communities across the district is ferry service, and he did cut $10 million out of the budget for ferries. I'm not 100% clear what that $10 million was supposed to do, but it operated as some kind of a backstop in case the federal funding doesn't come through, and Senator Stedman could speak more clearly about it. But my understanding is as long as the federal funding comes through, that will not negatively impact us for now. So um, I was really worried when I saw a cut to ferries, but it sounds like that cut won't be as um, dire as it sounded like at first. The, The impact that I am absolutely certain will be felt in House District 2 and across the state is the 50% slash to the education funding that the legislature approved. And that, you know, specifically in Petersburg, for better or for worse, uh, the budget for 24 did not include an increase from the state, I guess, recognizing the risk of budgeting on money that wasn't yet approved. Um, But districts like Sitka, did plan on a certain amount coming from the state. And now they're having to revise down and look at cuts. You know, it's well over 80% of a school district's budget is personnel. So at this point, so late in the game, districts across the region and across the state have to decide, do we cut educators that we've committed to, or do we cut programs that we know benefit kids? And that's really what makes up a school district. There's no way to cut the education budget without impacting students. I'm curious what's happening in the legislature that you're worried could have the most negative impact on your constituents. I think a really big risk that we're facing right now is the recognition that a broad-based tax is likely necessary in the state. And I think a lot of us are sort of reckoning with that. Um, None of us is excited about it. But as the legislature and the governor discuss what kind of broad-based tax is appropriate or, or the right fit for Alaska, I see a battle coming over sales tax versus income tax. So if a tax is required, in my rural district, the least harm would be done through an income tax rather than a sales tax. And the way I explain that is 
if you're paying $5 for a gallon of milk in Anchorage in places like Petersburg, that price is going to be quite a bit higher. And then if you go even further away to places like Angoon or Cake or Teneke, those prices could be twice what Anchorage pays. And so a sales tax really impacts our communities. What is making you hopeful right now? Uh, the fact that we're, I think, I hope, closer than ever to actually looking at the structural deficit the state is facing. As painful as that conversation has been and is going to be, it's a necessary conversation. And so it's it's maybe not the right word to say. I'm hopeful that we'll have that hard conversation, but I don't think Alaska can move forward without it. And so um, I'm ready for that conversation. And I guess the hope for me is that we bring our best intentions to the table and go through the difficult conversation and come up with solutions so that we're not underfunding education and so that our state agencies aren't strangled with flat funding year after year after year in the face of inflation. That was Alaska State Representative Rebecca Hemshute of House District 2 speaking with KFSK's Hannah Floor. Cell phones across a huge swath of Alaska beeped awake Saturday night with an urgent tsunami warning. Move to high ground or inland now, it said, and you are in danger. The alerts went out a bit before 11 p.m., shortly after a magnitude 7.2 earthquake was detected southwest of Sand Point. Some people were supposed to get the message, but others, like Anchorage residents, were not. Emergency officials are once again trying to figure out why. Mark Roberts runs this runs the state emergency operations center. Roberts says a lot of debriefs are underway with officials from multiple agencies. The system worked. It just worked larger area than it should have. Our default is always to be safe. So we don't consider it a failure when folks are alerted to a tsunami warning that aren't in the warning area. Roberts says it isn't yet clear who was affected that shouldn't have been, or how many devices were activated. Broader versions of this played out in Alaska after earthquakes and tsunami warnings in 2018 and 2020. People got the alert who didn't live where a tsunami could hit. Eventually, a six-inch wave hit King Cove and Sand Point. Roberts cautioned that when earthquakes happen in coastal areas, tsunamis can arrive before warnings. He says if an earthquake is strong enough to knock you off your feet or shakes you for more than 20 seconds. If you're in a coastal hazard area, you need to use that as your warning and take action to get to high ground. There may not be time for the tsunami warning to be disseminated. The last fatal tsunamis in Alaska were in 1994 in Skagway and after the Good Friday earthquake in 1964. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. This is Morning 